Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Welcome to the Cal Podcast with me, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Llewellyn Usher. Today's guest is number one best-selling author and acclaimed motivational speaker, Simon Sinek. Born in Wimbledon in 1973, he subsequently lived in Johannesburg and Hong Kong before settling in the United States. An unshakable optimist, Simon believes in a bright future and our ability to build it together. He discovered remarkable patterns about how the greatest leaders and organizations think, act, and communicate, and is best known for popularizing the concept of starting with why in his first TED talk in 2009. Simon Rose become the third most watched speaker on TED.com with over 40 million views and is subtitled in 47 languages. The author of multiple best-selling books, including the global bestseller, Start With Why, Leaders Eat Last, Together Is Better, and most recently, The Infinite Game. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for giving up your time to talk to us today about a, a subject I know is, is close to your heart in all the things that you've done. Oh, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So conscious that we're, we're talking about leadership, and, and it's something that over the last couple of weeks with, with our previous guests, I, I've tried very hard to sort of talk to them about uh, and understand and tease out perhaps some of the fundamentals. Uh, and if I might start with asking you a question I'm asking more regularly is, what does leadership mean to you? And how might you surmise it? Well, I think leadership is actually a misunderstood concept. And when it's poorly defined and misunderstood, then you're going to work to that, that definition. Leadership has nothing to do with being in charge. That's a position of leadership. Uh, leadership is the awesome responsibility to take care of those around you. It's the responsibility to see those around you rise. Um, you know, even in sort of old military texts, I've seen leadership defined as the power of influence. Well, you can influence people, you know, with the threat of punishment. Uh, that doesn't make you a good leader. But for me, my entire practice and understanding of it is, uh, like I said, it's not about being in charge, but taking care of those in your charge. Do you think, therefore, that leaders are born or made? Uh, leadership is a skill, like any other skill. Um, and we all have the capacity for leadership. Like we all have the capacity to be a parent. It doesn't mean we all want to be a parent and it doesn't mean we all should be a parent. It's the same thing. We all have a capacity for leadership. It doesn't mean we all want to be leaders and it doesn't mean we all should be leaders. And the ones who we consider quote unquote natural born leaders, they, they're not. They learned it when they were younger or they learned it from a great leader they had. And even the great leaders that we admire, if you go back to their early days, you see they were sort of a bit bumbling, but they figured it out. They learned, they practiced. Um, so yeah, no, leadership is an absolutely learnable, practicable skill. And for those who choose to go on that leadership journey, there's no such thing as a leadership expert. It doesn't exist. Um, mm. you know, there's no, we're all students of leadership. And even those that we consider, quote unquote, great leaders are constantly, constantly learning. They're obsessed. They're reading books. They're reading articles. They're constantly talking about it. Um, so yeah, that's, it's further proof that it's an enhanceable skill. And a science, perhaps. Oh yeah, there's plenty of science behind it for sure, for sure. But uh, but like being a parent, there's plenty of science behind parenting. No, there's no such thing as a perfect yes. parent. The, you know, you're absolutely right. It's, it's and, a uh, constant. It's a constant battle. You're you're already appealing to an audience out there who are routinely uh, who have their head in their hands about how well something might work at work. It definitely doesn't work at home. <laughs> but people, strangely, people are people, and some of the best leadership lessons or books that I've, I've come across are actually parenting books. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah that's very true. We, we, with that in mind, you know, perhaps we could, we might talk about your upbringing. You had a, a you know, quite an eclectic early childhood moving around the world. And, and then indeed, when you then went on to your edge through, through education, you had a very sort of different background to some people get how, how much of an influence was your upbringing and indeed your own parents in terms of where you got to. Well, I mean, of, of course they were an influence, you know, what specifically I, you know, I'm, you know, Positive, just, you can that sort of, you know, naturally one's parents are an influence, but, but was there something specific that perhaps influenced where, where you are now? Uh, that's, that's a great question. I think there are two things, you know, I grew up all over the world. So born in England to English parents, uh, moved to South Africa, pretty young, moved back to England, then to Hong Kong, went to English school in Hong Kong, and then at the age of 10, moved to the United States. After college, moved back to the UK for a couple of years, and then I've been in the States ever since then. And so I think that lifestyle from a very young age 
you know, where family became very important, our little tight knit. And I still believe in that sort of tight knit group of friends and the tight knit team. Mm. Um, but also it made me, it got me used to being in uncomfortable and unfamiliar places pretty quickly and learning to adapt and learning to figure things out. And my sister and I, who are very opposite personalities, we both have that. And you could sort of drop us in the middle of nowhere and we'll kind of just figure it out, you know? Mm. So that, that I think definitely, the resourcefulness definitely comes from our upbringing. And my parents were, um, they were the cool parents. That, you know, our, our friends loved coming over. They were pretty, pretty relaxed, but they also encouraged us to follow our passions and um, were very encouraging of us to do the things that we wanted to do. And I think they recognized in me very young that I, I wasn't... <laughs> wasn't like other kids. Uh, so, you know, they knew that I was harder on myself. So I didn't, like, if I got a bad grade, they knew that I would beat myself up more than they could ever say anything. So they sort of mm. would let it be. Um, but yeah, super encouraging and, and always encouraging us to sort of expand our horizons and try new things. So definitely big influence. Yeah. You think that's a, that's an interesting trait that we see, you know, people, high performance individuals or people who perform in high performance environments quite often are very self-critical we speak to a lot of sports stars from the uk who referred to others from around the world who routinely overanalyze what they're doing Do you think that's a common trait in people who, who perform to a very high level i've never i haven't done a formal study but but my gut reaction says for sure because um those who high perform are in a they're in a, a mode of constant improvement, right? Mm -hmm. Which means you're constantly evaluating and reevaluating. And I think beating yourself up is one thing. I think that's different from replaying with the goal of improving. So do I lie in bed and replay events over and over and over in my head? Yes, but always trying to figure out the nuance and what I could do and what, if it comes up again, what will I do? As opposed to just saying, don't be stupid, don't be stupid, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think that makes very good sense um the playing things over and over in your head but always with the the goal of constant improvement there's a, there's a very fine line isn't there between over analyzing to the nth degree and worrying about something that you've done rather than taking away and looking at okay what did we do there that we can then learn from and move forward yeah and i think this you know again this is art and science right we all over or under index at various points mm. Uh, but the opposite is true too. Sort of like not taking things too seriously, like, all right, I screwed up, let's move on, versus being completely like, whatever, you know, and and just sort of moving past any lesson that could have been learned. Um, yeah. I think there are fine lines on both sides of the of the spectrum. Do you think there's any specific moment in your childhood where you you refer you can refer back to now and see, okay, that's a key point that I realized how my character was starting to evolve. And you, you talk about your overanalyzing everything when you were younger. Do you think there was this, anything perhaps specific or is that just an innate feeling or, or, or way in which you dealt with stuff? So one of the things that I think really helped me, I'm a great believer that the solutions we find to the struggles we have when we're kids become our strengths as adults. Mm. Uh, so I was and am a kid with ADHD. Fortunately, it wasn't a diagnosable thing when I was a kid. And so I was just considered, you know, hyperactive or distractible or couldn't focus and, you know, all of all the list of things. The problem was, so I couldn't read books because I couldn't get through them. I kept getting distracted. I was no good at doing homework, for example. And so I still had to get through school, mm. you know? So I had to learn the skill set pretty young of talking to people and being a good listener and asking good questions. Because if I wasn't going to do the reading, I had to be able to go after class and talk to the teacher, call up my friends and ask questions to get advice and be able to listen really intently to discern and get the information that I needed to get through school. That is basically one of my strengths as an adult. One, one of the things I've built my career on is being able to be highly attuned to the things that are being said to me to pull out the, the salient bits, you know. So I'm grateful for the fact that I had to figure it out myself with the support of my parents. That's number one. The other thing, and this is just an aside, it's my own little diatribe here. You know, it, it hurts me that we label these things in the pejorative. So we tell a child, for example, that you have a, a deficit and a disorder. You have attention deficit disorder. I mean, can you imagine telling your children you, are, you have a deficit and disorder, good luck in life? 
And, and the reality is all of these things are balanced. I don't believe in good, bad, right, wrong. I believe everything comes, it, it comes at balance. So for anything good that we do in our lives or achieve in our lives, it comes at some sort of cost, always. There's always a balancing factor. But at the same time, anything bad or negative, quote unquote, there's some sort of lesson or advantage. And I think it's very important to always be aware of both. And it keeps you humble for the good stuff, but it also doesn't, it doesn't deflate you when you look at the bad stuff. So if I look at ADD and ADHD, one of the things that all of us have is hyper-focus, which is mm. when we're focused, I can get more done in a day than most people can done, get done in a week. And I can get more done in a week than most people can get done in a month when I'm focused. So I'd rather be told that I have hyper-focus with, with sometimes distractibility rather than I'm distractible and occasionally I'm hyper-focused. Mm. I want to know that I have a superpower, not a deficit in the disorder. Because that's, that's where your confidence is built and you accept the bad with the good, but it's hard to see the good when you're told you're bad. Um, and I was very, very lucky for whatever reason that I was able to dis discern that I had a power that my friends didn't have, even though I had some weaknesses that my friends didn't have. And I got good at focusing on the things that I was good at from a pretty young age, like from a pretty young age. Really? And do you think that then helped you evolve, obviously, as a young teenager and as a, as a young adult, you, you can develop that. You, that's, that's a really fascinating way of, of looking at and, and actually a, a different mind shift or a different perspective on what's, what's perceptively a weakness, but actually might be a strength. A hundred percent. Like I said, I don't think of good, no. bad, right, wrong. I think of things yeah. in terms of balance. Yeah. I'm more sophisticated in the way I can talk about it now. So I'm but very, very competitive but I'm more competitive my, with myself than I am with others. I, I would rather outdo myself than outdo others. Like I wish everybody the best of luck, but I wanna do better than myself mm. than I did last time. So it's, again, it's constant improvement, but it doesn't come across as this angry competition where I'm willing to do horrible things to somebody and cheat and break the game so that mm. I can get ahead. Because when you're that competitive against others, and we see this in business all the time, when you're that competitive against others, unfortunately it can lead to uncomfortable and sort of unethical things because you have to win um, or or it comes at great personal expense like for example i've talked to a lot of uh, olympic athletes and the ones who especially who perform in individual sports versus team sports sometimes they can be so competitive that all of their relationships are basically self-serving how can you help me advance my dream and if you can't help me advance my dream then i don't need you and, you know, yes, they make sacrifices and miss birthdays and Christmases and all of that stuff for their own dream. But then a lot of them, when they retire from their sport, they realize that they don't really have a lot of deep, meaningful friendships because they didn't spend any time building them. And so, again, it goes back to what I was saying before. Everything comes at a cost. And sometimes I think that cost is too high. And, and not to just go off on a tangent here. Welcome to my brain. Not to go off on a tangent here, but, you know, just talking about this thing of balance. So I know, for example, in the US Marine Corps, if a Marine wanted to change their death benefits, right? It used to be that they used to fill out the form manually, probably in triplicate, because it's, you know, the US government. And you go to your NCO and they have to sign off on it. And if it if it says you're taking your mum off your death benefits, that NCO is gonna lean in and say, What's going on? Right? Mm -hmm. But in the name of efficiency and the, the want to reduce cost and red tape, they digitize that process. So now you just log on to the intranet and you change your death benefits. Great. But there's a little statistic that went unnoticed, which is well into the 90th percentile of Marines who attempt, who make a suicide attempt, will change their death benefits within one week of that suicide attempt. And so did we save money? Yes. Did we reduce bureaucracy? Yes. Was it worth the cost was it worth the money we saved because we removed the human being and so i'm always thinking of what's the cost now i'm not saying go back to the old system but i'm saying how do you use the digital system flag something and and make sure that nco make sure that officer gets put back in the system and so i'm always thinking about these things so if i screw something up or if i have some inherent weakness i'm always thinking to myself okay what's the what's the balancing side of this and that likewise, it keeps me humble. If I think of, well, I'm really good at this. I'm thinking, okay, what's the balancing side of this? Yeah. I'm always thinking in, in terms like that. And, and it goes to answer your, your question about childhood. 
my friends were all really good at a subject. So one friend was like really good at maths. Another friend was like really good at, at English. Another friend was a brilliant actor. Another friend, you know, and they all were like really good at a subject. And I was like fine at everything. Like I wasn't great at anything. I was just sort of fine. I was like decent. I didn't have a subject. And as a kid, it caused me great stress. Like what's my subject? And I'd go through the list of classes at school and none of them were quote unquote my subject. And so I learned to start looking off the schedule. And I started looking at skills that weren't maths, English, you know, the tradition, science, they weren't the traditional. And I started discovering that I could talk, right? That I could listen, that I was good at going between groups. So all the different cliques in school, I had friends in each of them. And I realized that these were skills that were off the list that probably kind of benefited me at school, but probably not much, but would probably benefit me later in life. Mm -hmm. And even though I had to keep working on all the other things, realized that if I really worked on this stuff, these things that were I had natural ability, it would help me. And I think that's very important for leaders and for parents, quite frankly, but to go back to leadership, which is, yes, you still have to work on the stuff you're no good at, of course, but you really have to build on your strengths. I've never understood the whole concept where we give people a list of their weaknesses and tell them if you just work on this stuff, you'll do well. Well, no, if you work only on your weaknesses, at best, you'll be mediocre at those things. But if we highlight our strengths and we help people work on their strengths, they'll become great at those things. And, and as we, everybody knows, when you're junior, you have to be good at everything. You don't have a choice. When you're senior, we value you for the things that you're good at in a few narrow things. There's senior commanders who we know, you're like, that person's terrible at details and that person, but they're great visionary and strategists. So don't put them in a detail job, put them in a strategy job. In other words, when you become senior, we focus you on your strengths. But I hope that you've been spending your career building those strengths. And it takes a good leader to help us recognize their strengths, highlight those strengths, and put us in positions where we're gonna build upon those strengths. You can be on a team where your weaknesses are compensated. Yeah. I want you to be the best at what you're already good at. Hey, there's, there's a lot in there, Simon. That's awesome. We don't need to go, go over every bit, but I think there's a couple of key bits in there. And perhaps knowing your people to help them maximize their talent is absolutely fundamental. And, and that therefore their talent will maximize the outputs of your team. But before you are able to do that, the old adage of know thyself and understand one's own strengths and weaknesses, right? And how to improve them is, is critical. And be open about it. Yeah. You know, I think one of the greatest leadership lessons I ever learned is I don't have to be good at everything and I don't have to pretend that I am. Yeah, as long as someone in the team is. Right, right. And I think one of the big mistakes that leaders make is they think their credibility comes from their ability to be good at everything or to know the, all the answers, which quite frankly is impossible. So there's a great irony because when a leader acts tough and knows, thinks that they know everything and lie, is lying, hiding and faking very often, it puts an unfair pressure on the team that they have to maintain the same standard, which means the team's gonna be lying, hiding and faking to you. Mm. And the great leaders lead by example and to know thyself, as you said, and be open about it. You know, some of the best leaders I know and many of the military leaders have a, an incredible sense of humor about their weaknesses. So I'm thinking of one general I know, one GO, who I've, he's come through the ranks really quickly. He's a hero. He's risked his life multiple times to, to, to save the lives of others. And he'll laugh, cry out loud in front of his team. I suck at that. Can somebody please take care of that with me or help mm. me out here because I'll break it. You know, he's not, in the, he's not an in the weeds leader. He's just not. He's crap at it. But he's very open about it. And by being very open about it and joking about it, it creates a space in which his team can come to him and tell him where they're weak. And he can then move the team around to create higher performance. But if he's lying and hiding and faking, then they're lying, hiding and faking. By his openness and his, he creates empathy. And then, you know, he allows the followers to, to be part of the leadership process as well. Right. That's something that we're looking at pretty, pretty heavily over the last couple of weeks. Amen. Amen. And it goes and you can you can follow that, you know, keep pulling on that string. And we start talking about like mental health, for example, yeah. which I know in the military become very, very important. And you're sort of ahead of the curve than the rest of us. It took a global pandemic for us to start asking that question. Mm -hmm. And I know the military's learned a lot in Iraq and Afghanistan about the importance of mental health and treating mental health. And again, 
it's important for the leaders to lead by example. I know of a leader who he says, if you break your leg, you go see a doctor. If your head is broken, you go see a doctor. Like, duh. But, and he doesn't just say, hey, the, the psychiatrist is available. Make sure you go take advantage. He will say, I'm having a bad week. This hour in my schedule, I will be unavailable because I'm going to go talk to the psychiatrist. And it's legitimate. It's not just for show. Because he's recognized that if he keeps telling his people take advantage of these resources, but they never see him take advantage of the resources, they won't take advantage of the resources yeah. because they don't want to let him down or they want to appear as strong as they think he is. And so I think this term vulnerability is an uncomfortable term for a lot of leaders because they don't want to appear or be weak. But let's be crystal clear what vulnerability means. Vulnerability means you feel psychologically safe enough to raise your hand and say out loud, I made a mistake or mm. I need help or there's stuff happening at home that's causing me stress that's affecting my work or I don't know or I'm scared without any fear of retribution or humiliation. That's what vulnerability means, which is we state things that make us appear weak. But the re reality is when we say it out loud, it turns out we're surrounded by people who want to help us and be there for us. The only reason they didn't is because they didn't think we needed it. This is the problem with lying, hiding and faking, which is the help is there, but nobody gives it to us. And then mm. we project, they don't want to help me. No, it's because we haven't said that we need it. And so when a leader says, I screwed up, or I don't understand, or can somebody explain that to me again, I still don't know what, what that means, especially when they can lean on their team and their subordinates who often know more, the mm. people at the top of all the authority, the people lower down in the rank have all the information yeah. and the opportunity is not to push the information up it's to push the authority down mm. right that's david marquet's work but the point is that the leaders who are open and willing to express their quote-unquote vulnerability create teams in which everybody's willing to do that which means we can much more easily be there for each other because yeah. we're aware yeah we, i had the great pleasure great privilege one year working for general mccrystal we had on the podcast last year uh, and indeed admiral mcraven who's on in a, in a week or so you know and they they are great exponents of be open and honest and as from a military perspective and yeah our, our listeners will will pick up on very recently we had will greenwood who was part of the england rugby team who won the world cup in 2003 and his his great mate ben fennel who talk about you know winning ways and winning matters and how you build teams and they, they talk exactly about that you know dan carter who's you know one of the world's best rugby players when he started playing for the All Blacks, if you went to see the, the head doctor, people thought there was something wrong with you. And yet at the end of his time you know, in professional sport, it was, why aren't you going to go and see them? You know, why, yeah. What is wrong? You know, be, be open about trying to understand what, how you can improve yourself, but also importantly, set the conditions for your people to go and do that as well. And, and one thing you'll find in common with McChrystal and um, uh, McRaven, they won't ever make movies about those guys, right? Well, not good ones anyway. No, but they don't make movies about, about good leaders. They make movies about bad leaders, like Master and Commander, movies like that, which is, you know, everything goes to hell in a handbasket and everybody doesn't know what to do. And we all wait for the hero to walk in and bark orders and tell everybody what to do and solve all the problems. Well, that's generally bad leadership. Good leaders, if you go into their organizations, boring because everything just works kind of fine. And everybody's self-sufficient and solving problems and working together and when you say hey where's the boss and they all look around and go i don't think they came in today i don't know i don't know we, we didn't see them and it's just boring high functioning teams tend not to be so dramatic drama makes great movies but you don't want an excess of drama on your leadership team it's great to listen to these folks but we have to be very careful about taking our leadership cues um from the cinema because generally those leaders are crap yeah and and often contextually wrong and historically inaccurate and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. fiction or fiction or fact quote unquote so we talked about winning and you know the concept of what winning means we've absolutely talked about that and over the last couple of weeks with with some of our guests and perhaps you could expand on that a little bit and where you it, it, you talk about the specifics of winning yeah. and actually therefore what winning means when it defines who you are, yeah. but also when it becomes the thing, that the, the only thing that you can live for. Perhaps you yeah. could expand on that a little bit and then deal with 
if one doesn't achieve what one's perceived as one's goal. Yeah, for sure. So here's some, some, some historical facts that I find curious, right? So during the Vietnam War, um, the United States actually won most of the major battles it fought in Vietnam. Mm. And over the 10 years of that war, the United States lost about 58,000 men. And the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese lost over 3 million people. Mm. And it raises a very interesting question. How do you win all the battles and decimate your enemy and lose the war, right? So clearly there's more than one definition of losing and winning. And the work of Dr. James Carse was profound in my life. James Carse was a, a theologian and philosopher in the mid 1980s. Well, he lived longer than that, but his theories that I am drawn to were first espoused in the mid 1980s. And he defined these two types of games, finite games and infinite games. A finite game is defined as known players, fixed rules, and an agreed upon objective. There's always a beginning, middle, and an end. And if there's a winner, necessarily there have to be losers. So football or rugby or even conventional war, right? There's a beginning, mm -hmm. middle, and end. There's a winner and a loser. There's a treaty, somebody surrenders, whatever, right? Then you have infinite games. Infinite games are defined as known and unknown players, which means sometimes you don't know who all the other players are and any player can join at any time. The rules are changeable, which means you can play however you want. And the objective is to perpetuate the game, to stay in the game as long as possible. So we are players in infinite games every day of our lives, whether we know it or not. There's no such thing as winning education, right? You can come in first for the finite amount of time you're at school, where we agreed upon the time frame and the metrics, grades, but nobody mm. wins education. You can win a battle, but you don't win army, right? You can achieve rank, but nobody's declared the winner of army, right? It doesn't exist. No. There's no such thing as winning global politics, and there's definitely no such thing as winning business, right? Like if a company goes bankrupt, their competitors aren't declared the winners. It just keeps going. But if you listen to the language of so many of our leaders, it becomes abundantly clear that they don't always know the game they're playing in. They talk about being number one, being the best, or beating their competition. Based on what? Based upon what agreed, agreed upon metrics, timeframes, and objectives. And when it comes to leadership, this becomes very, very important. Because when we play with a finite mindset in an infinite game, when you play to win in a game that has no finish line, in other words, you get the, the game wrong, an understanding of the game wrong, and you play by, with the wrong mentality, there's a few very consistent and predictable outcomes. The big ones include the decline of trust, the decline of cooperation, and the decline of innovation. And so, you know, yes, you should have a finite mindset when it meets the criteria of a finite game. Is there a known objective? Is there an agreed upon time frame? Is there an agreed upon metric, right? So for example, uh, Iraq moves into Kuwait, okay? Very simple objective, move Iraq out of Kuwait, upon which we will declare victory, right? Very, very clear. And so you work to the, Very finite, you work mm -hmm. to that end, right? And you play with a finite mindset and you can do all the things, overwhelming force, all these, you know, all these wonderful things that are good to win, the game. Go defeat um, ISIS. Mm. Good luck with that. That's a philosophy. There, you can win battles, but you cannot defeat. It's like, I love the war on drugs. There's no winning the war on drugs. And the reason is because they're both playing with a, with a different mindset, mm. right? The, the, the West against ISIS, for example, is trying to beat ISIS. They're just trying to expand. They're mm. just trying to advance philosophy. Like criminals, you know, the police want to beat the criminals. Criminals just want to do more crime. They're, not, they're not trying to defeat the police, right? They're completely opposite. And so, yes, there are finite components within the infinite game, of course, of course. But overall, at a strategic level, you have to understand the game you're in. And the way you play in an infinite game is you exhaust your enemy of the will and resources to play. You make it expensive, you make it exhausting. So killing leaders of, of terrorist organizations, do we defeat the organization? No, but do we make it less desirable to lead those organizations when we become better and better and doing it quicker and quicker? Yes, you make it, you make it uncomfortable. <laughs> you make it exhausting. You keep them on the run that they have to be in a different safe house every night. We like that. It's called pressure. But again, it's a different mentality and different strategies. Um, and this is the mistake we made in Vietnam. It's the mistake we made in Afghanistan. We thought we could win a game that we didn't actually have a clear understanding what the objective was. But also you're playing against, for that rationale, when the two finite and infinite 
collide and you're in a rules-based structure playing against a, an, a structure with no rules, how do you contend that, you, how do you adapt your own rules within the bounds of the law and Correct. societal norms that ensure that you can defeat those which you're going to, or, or rather disrupt? If you're saying defeat is very finite and you can't do Correct. that, therefore, how do you disrupt them enough to no longer cause you a problem? And, and remember, if you go to finite war, we both kind of play by the same rules. Both our armies are uniform, so we can recognize who's who. Mm -hmm. We both obey the Geneva Conventions. There are certain things that are illegal in war, and we don't do those things, you know, when we go and fight. But when you're fighting somebody who's clearly playing with a more infinite mindset, to your point, we have to adjust. Now, we, we are a rules-based society, and our values are one of the things that distinguish us from our enemies. And so we can't forgo our values because then we're, then who are we? And I'll give you a perfect example of that. It defies rational. So for example, we had a scandal here in the United States in Afghanistan where uh, some of our members of our military were photographed urinating on the bodies of dead bad guys. Now let's be honest, rationally speaking, who cares? Like they're dead, like they're taking out their frustration. I get it, whatever, right? But no. The reason it was a scandal is because we don't do that. That is beneath us. That we, we obey a rule of law and we have an, a, a level of respect that demonstrates who we are, it is our values. And so we have to maintain those values, even though rationally, like, quote unquote, what harm was done, quote unquote, but you could argue lots of harm from perception and, and, and lack of respect, all of these things. We show respect. That's how we operate. And so these things are extremely important for a well-run organization because what makes a great military organization is not your technology, it's your people. Mm. And you are values-based organizations, which means people have to be held accountable to the values, not just to the fact if they're guerrillas on the battlefield. We fight in a, within a certain boundary and that's mm. what makes us who we are. And we're yeah. proud of that. We believe that's what makes us better. We think that's, our, that's the reason we choose to live here, is for the values. They form the central part of our, our ethos, depending on what's, what organization one's in, but also our individual our collective and national identities and cultures. And, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they're the things that we want to uphold, right? And when those things start to fall away in the name of trying to win, you may have a finite victory, but at what cost? At the yeah. cost of your own identity? At the cost of your own value set? You know, what happens after that victory when you've let all your values go? Yeah. Who are you? What do you become? Yeah, yeah. What happens next? Remember, in the infinite game, there's no end. It keeps going and going and going. And now you lose credibility. And now, you, now you're fighting against yourselves. You know, mm. we, we, we're seeing this happen in the United States. We were so obsessed with winning in business and in global politics and all of this that we didn't know what to do. I, I, just to go off on a tangent, I can sort of sort of demonstrate this, right? Which is, if you consider the Soviet Union versus the United States or in the West, right? The Cold War was an infinite game. We never actually pulled in, yes, there were proxy wars, but we never pulled triggers at each other. So there was no hot war, which is generally finite, mm. right? Because finite war, I mean, hot, hot wars, you can't maintain it forever, right? It's finite. Force on force on force. Force on force, it's unsustainable forever. You can't mm. do it, right? It's just cost too much. Yeah. And so we never actually pulled triggers on each other with the Soviet Union. We couldn't actually predict what victory would look like. It was a philosophical battle, right? Um, and I would argue that the West made one of the single greatest foreign policy blunders of the 20th century when the Berlin Wall came down. We announced that we had won the Cold War. Really? Based on what? And as a result, we acted like victors. So about, for about 11 years, the United States imposed its will on the world. We declared no-fly zones over sovereign nations, which you would never have been able to do during the Cold War because there was a balance of power. But we mm -hmm. did. We imposed our will on the world for about 11 years. Turns out the world didn't like it. And as always happens in an infinite game, new players emerge. Like when a company goes bankrupt, new companies will emerge. So consider that the Cold War existed on three levels. There was a, a, a nuclear tension the two largest nuclear powers in the world, the United States and Soviet Union. There was an ideological tension between the West and the Soviet Union. We were both ideological exporters, democracy and capitalism versus Soviet-style communism, and we're both spreading these ideologies looking for customers. And all of our alliances were based on those ideologies. If you were a communist, we weren't friends with you. 
That's it, real easy. And then there was the economic tension, the two largest economies in the world. In other words, this trifecta of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness existed in these tensions. Um, so the Soviet Union ran out of the will and resources to stay in the game. They couldn't afford, and their people no longer had the will to stay in the game. They dropped out of the game. We didn't win. They just ran. They just dropped out of the game. Mm. Well, their and their leadership was undermined by the fact the will of the people was lost. Right. Exactly. So they lost the will and they ran out of cash. We didn't win. They fell out. Big difference. So if the leadership had been better, do you think it might have been subtly different? I mean, it's a combination of things. How much money they had, the strength of their economy, the better leadership, etc., the will of the people, all the things. Um, but what ended up happening was new players emerged. Unfortunately, they weren't conveniently co-located in a single geography. So the nuclear attention was largely replaced by the th threat from North Korea, but maybe Pakistan, maybe Iran, maybe China. We don't really fear nuclear war with China. But eh, who knows, one day. Um, the ideological tension was largely replaced by religious extremism. It's an ideology looking for customers, mm -hmm. right? In opposition of our own ideology. We're the great Satan, right? And, uh, and then you have an economic tension, which was largely replaced by China. And uh, some would argue that Russia is flirting with all of these again. But it used to be really easy to develop strategy because it was all, all those three tensions were co-located in single geography. Now, those three tensions which make up the Cold War, and we're in Cold War 2.0. The Cold War did not end, it simply changed forms. It's like in the United States, we used to have a um, huge electronics retailers called Circuit City, and their primary, customer, uh, their primary competitor was Best Buy. Well, Circuit City went bankrupt. Best Buy didn't win anything, but Amazon emerged as a new, mm -hmm. as a new competitor. Well, the Soviet Union was, was Circuit City, the West is Best Buy and China's Amazon, right? The game didn't end, it just changed forms. And so we're here in the West debating what the threat is. Is it Iran? Is it China? Is it North Korea? Is it Russia? Is it... The answer is you have to deal with all of it. You don't get to choose. It's, and it's way more complicated. And what's even more complicated is for our adversaries, their enemy is single, single focus. It's much easier for them to organize their resources than it is for us. And so we, unfortunately, in the West are still playing with a finite mindset with mm. the false history that we quote unquote won. And we wasted 30 years. We wasted 30 yeah. years preparing for what the next game could look like, but instead just acted like victors. Our technology got old. We didn't figure out how to reduce bureaucracy to speed up technology as the internet and computers came in. And now, congratulations, your new technology was the thing that you ordered 30 years ago. Literally, yeah. literally. It comes off the, off the line and it's outdated on day one. Yeah. This, is all, you... so this, this all goes to your point when you're obsessed with winning in the wrong game, it's gonna catch up with you at some point. And now you become the one being thrashed, running through the will and resources to stay in the game. It's yeah. becoming more expensive. And you look at the West, we don't seem to have an appetite for anything here in the United States. It's actually political what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Go back a bunch of years, this would be like a no-brainer. When you balance or try and balance finite and uh, and in well, infinite and finite game or opposition, countering and, and balancing against that, how do you view those two different aspects? Because there's two different people playing different games. We go back to the bit we talk about how do you have a rules-based society and an organization against an opposition that isn't rules-based. Right. Talking about infinite and finite games and when we're trying to look at how we in a rules-based society are going to achieve success against those that are not playing and therefore have an infinite. So we have a finite mindset you talk about and, and perhaps our opposition sometimes have an infinite mindset when you're, right. you're referring back to Vietnam and, and perhaps into Afghanistan and elsewhere. Do you think their leadership of, uh, uh, differs fundamentally from how perhaps our leadership does and yeah. therefore do you think that their concept of start with why is in a fundamentally different place to where ours is yeah it's a great question and it highlights one of the mistakes we make in a bit of the hubris in the west which is they all are also values based their values are different mm. Mm. Right? they also have rules that they follow and the mistake that we make is we think we're good and they're evil but here's the thing no one thinks they're evil Everyone thinks they're on the side of good. 
And so the way you play is to empathize and understand what they're trying to advance. And this is where ideology is important. What we have lost in the West is our ideology. If you go back a bunch of years, and I don't care what your politics are, Ronald Reagan, John F. Kennedy, Margaret Thatcher, I don't care what your politics are. If you like them or hate them, it doesn't matter. If you listen to their speeches, they talked about world peace and peace on earth and mm -hmm. doing something to advance our values. Again, JFK and Ronald Reagan in their inaugural addresses both said, we do these things to achieve world peace, peace on earth. Saying things like world peace now, it actually sounds a little corny and cheesy. And one of the things that I admire about China or ISIS or all of these, they have, they have ideals of what they're trying to achieve. You can see that they're trying to drive towards something much bigger than themselves that's a thousand years away, where we're thinking about the next election cycle. So our failure to play the infinite game has nothing to do with our values. It has to do with our horizons and our lack of ideology. And no. our lack of idealism, I mean, our lack of idealism. What is the idealized version of the world we're trying to create? versus being reactive to things that offend that idealism, even though we don't talk about what it is. I, I think over the course of the past 30, 40 years, since the Berlin Wall came down, we've been chipping away at our, our infinite mindset. We had an infinite mindset. We were great. The Soviet Union would have fallen out of the game if we only had a finite mindset. We were thriving and driving to something bigger than ourselves. Now we just want to be the biggest, the best, win, you know, all of these very finite-minded things. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not foolhardy. I know that the infinite game is not the absence of finite games. It's the context within which those finite games exists. But the problem is if you lose the context, then all you have is the winning. Now yeah. let's go down 30,000 feet and go into a leadership environment, to a team. If that leader only cares about their next promotion versus that leader cares about leaving this organization in better shape than they found it, yeah. those are very, very different. And by the way, both leaders may get promoted quickly. There may be success in both of those teams at various times, but you know as well as I do that that leader that's driven solely by their own career will break a team and leave it for the next person to clean up versus the one who decides they're gonna leave it in better shape than mm -hmm. they found it, builds a better organization. Now, that's the exact same thing that I've been trying to explain at the, at the macro level. It's, so in other words, we know this is true at a micro level, then why would it change at a macro level? And the answer is it doesn't. So we talk about leading and, and a very good, to sort of dial into leading teams and small teams in particular, but so you know, some people are predisposed to inspire or to be inspirational. You talk about it very eloquently in the book. How do you turn that on its head? How do you look at those people who are natural followers and perhaps not predisposed to be inspirational? How do you get them to learn to start with why and determine how they then evolve and become great at some thing or understand their own talents perhaps yeah great question and complicated question especially when it comes to military life right? so the brits are better than the us and so i i can speak i know more about our system than yours but we have this twisted system in our military where if you don't get promoted you have to leave it's up and it's up or out and not everybody wants to be in leadership not everybody wants the promotion and some people are really happy just being really good at their job. And as long as you give them regular pay rises, they don't need the rank. They don't want the rank. They don't want the responsibility. They just want to be in the trenches and they want to be really good at what they do. And yet our system doesn't allow for that, which forces people who, it forces everybody to play the advancement game when they don't want to. And I think weakens the team because you're losing great players because they just don't want to promote or they peter principle out, they do promote, but then we start, then their talent goes to crap. And so I think we have to adjust for that. And so to your point, I don't care if someone wants to promote or not. I want that person to wake up every day with two uh, driving forces. How am I a better version of myself today than I was yesterday? And what can I do to help the people to the left and the people to the right of me be better versions of themselves? And if they do that every single day, they are leaders. You know, you and I both know people with rank senior rank who are not leaders we do as they tell us because they have authority over us but we wouldn't follow them and you and i both know people with with not even out of curiosity yeah well that's different that's like looking <laughs> at a car accident and then you and i both know people with no rank but yeah. they've made a choice the choice to look after the person to the left of them and the choice to look at the, the choice to look after the person to the right of them mm. and we will trust them and follow those people everywhere so who's the leader 
Only one of them has a position of leadership, but I would argue that the other one is the leader. And indeed, sometimes leaders should be comfortable with being followers because the youngest person in the team might have the right idea or the right might you know, apocryphally get it. So therefore, why not? Why don't we expand on their knowledge, which is probably coming at this from a different perspective than ours? Well, I mean, and then there's a macro and micro answer to that as well, which is, as we go, go back to the previous um, points we were making, which is the best leaders are willing to say, or willing to know, I don't have mm -hmm. all the best ideas, I don't have all the exactly. answers, I don't know everything. And so if you have a junior member of your team who's smart, you go, that, more of that, please. Because then when you reward, recognize that behavior, guess what you're going to get from your team? Lots of great ideas. Yeah. If you step on every idea because it has to be your idea, guess what your team will give you? Nothing. And you only get your own bloody perspective, which I guarantee you is going to fail most of the time because you're just not that good. You're 100% right uh, in, in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. When you launched your own business, how did you set about defining what your why was and then how and what you were going to be able to do to achieve that? So I... The way, so it started with idealism, right? Like I recognized, uh -huh. like, obviously a why, it's too hard to be objective about oneself. So I asked somebody to come and help me figure out mine. My why is to inspire people to do the things that inspire them. And I didn't know exactly what to do with it. I just knew that I wanted to do it. I'm, I'm funny that way. And it goes back, I guess, to childhood questions. I guess we can go back to the psychologist's couch now. I think one thing that distinguishes my, the way I run my business and the way I do things is very different than most. And I guess it plays to finite and infinite which is I care about the destination and I'm agnostic to the root. Where what you find in most organizations and most entrepreneurial ventures, they're obsessed with the root and they have no sense of destination. Mm. So let me give you an example. So I'll give you a metaphor, right? Let's say you walk outside the house one morning, you see your neighbor packing up their car and you say, hey, where are you going? And they say, holiday. You go, amazing, where are you going? They say, holiday. And they say, no, 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 I, I know that. Where are you going? And they look at you and go, holiday. And you say, well, fine. How are you going to get there? They're going to say, well, I'm going to drive on the A1. And my goal is to drive 200 miles a day. Right? So there's a clear sense of route. There's a clear sense of goals. They'll, they'll do well. But where are they going? Yeah. Right? And I'm the opposite. I'm sitting in London or something. And somebody says, where are you going? I say, Scotland. And they go, how are you getting there? I go, no clue. <laughs> and for me, it, uh, what it does, is it allows for massive flexibility because if you're finite driven, if you're only mm. driven by the goal, absent of a destination, of an idealized definite destination, what happens if there's a car accident on, on the motorway? Now your, your, your blessed goal of 200 miles a day is now shot and you don't know what to do. Yeah. In my uh, version, when I'm driven to get to the destination, I recognize that it's sometimes slow and it's sometimes fast. And I can take a side road that looks like it's going in the wrong direction, but it's going around the, the accident. Or if somebody goes up to the other person and says, I've got a jet plane, you want to come in my plane, it goes much faster than your car. You go, yes, but it's going in the wrong direction. Where if somebody comes to me and says, I've got a jet plane, I say, which direction are you going in? I have to ask that question first. So all of my partnerships are, do I have ideological alignment with you? Do I have values alignment with you? Do you want to build the world that I want to build? I imagine a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired, feel safe wherever they are, and end the day fulfilled by the work that they do. If you want to build that world with me, let's partner. Versus if you don't want to build that world, if you only care about the next quarter, the next year, you only care about your own financial success, I'm sure you're a wonderful person, there's no judgment, you do amazing work, we can't work together because I don't know what direction you're going in. And even though I might have short-term success from this, I can't risk spending all that time to wake up in the morning and be like, oh crap, I went in the wrong direction. So I'd rather go slowly in the right direction than go running off in the wrong direction. Or perhaps from a, from a military audience, we'd work out, uh, and maybe this might be Nirvana. It's commander's but... intent. Yes, sir. Perhaps if we say we know where we want to go, hey, and here, by having worked it out is how we're going to get there. But we right. also have the flexibility to be able to go off various different branches and, and accept someone's plane if they've got one and it's going in the right direction. Correct. And the way it works yeah. in a large bureaucracy, like in the military, where clearly you have to give away authority, you have mm. to allow field level commanders to command. We know this from history. 
which mm. is when field level commanders have to keep asking permission up the chain of command before they can do anything, things start to break real soon, right? Yeah. So we have to trust. We train, we train, we train, we train, and then we let go. And what we teach is values. We teach skills. We teach you how to use your rifle. You got to learn how to do that. We teach values because once we let go, I need to trust that you operate within a code of ethics that we all agree to. Yeah. And then I'm going to give you a commander's intent. And then I'm going to let you figure out on the ground how to get there based on your skills and your values. And if it looks like you're going in the wrong direction, I'm not going to micromanage you because I have to believe there's a reason that you're taking a circuitous route because you know something I don't know. And that's highly effective because if you wait, all of the teams will eventually arrive in the same direction, even though they got there in different ways, mm. especially if they're coordinating, talking and sharing, because now there's exchange of information and exchange of ideas. And necessarily, you have to ask your subordinates, what do you think? And the commander then takes all that information and makes the decision. But asking your team, what do you think becomes an, an imperative. Yeah. You know? Well, it's inclusive decision making. It's empowering one's people uh, and giving them not only a sense of purpose and worth, but actually goes back to your bit about <laughs> allowing most junior and the youngest members of the team to have buy-in, and suddenly Correct. they might actually have to lead that. We would refer to that as mission command. You know, and, you're and, giving and when it works well, flexibility and when it works to people. Well, yeah. Even if I gave you an idea and you chose a different idea, I'm not going to sabotage it because it's not my idea. I'm not going to pout because it's not my idea once the commander makes a decision i will give every ounce of my power to see that that decision is successful mm. and if it fails i'm going to give every ounce of my power to try and put it right you'll never see me fold my arms and be like told you told you i told you you know and that's when you realize you have this wonderful cohesive team where you recognize mistakes are going to be made but it's always strong intent yeah i think the one of the big mistakes we make in all leadership and i think it's one of the things people misunderstand about military. The civilians think military is just all command and control. Do as I say, don't question authority, blah, 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 which is what it looks like in the movies. Remember, bad leaders make good movies. Where you and I both know that in peacetime, there's a lot of trust building. There's a lot of deferring. There's a lot of asking opinions. There's a lot of that value stuff, the intangibles. And when you step off that, that transport into combat, now, under, under severe stress, now there is command and control mm -hmm. where the commander does bark orders and you do not question. And there is no time in the firefight for you to say, well, have we considered an alternative route here? But what ends up happening is that team follows blindly because the trust has already been built and they know that their commander will not put them in harm's way unnecessarily and also knows that sometimes that commander will mis make mistakes in which people might die. But because that trust was built before you get into chaos, it works. But you cannot maintain that command and control all the time. It's exhausting. It doesn't build camaraderie. It doesn't build trust. And so at some point, you turn the command and control off. Mm -hmm. Empathy returns back into the system. How are you? Love returns back into the system. Patience returns back into the system. Mm -hmm. They all get put on hold. So it's the ability to know when, under what circumstances, to use these, these tools. And I think for people who model themselves after the movies of military and they're always command and control, it's exhausting for the team. We can't do that all the time. And you're destroying my will to want to do anything because I want to contribute. Yeah. And then that individual who is the Hollywood version of a leader becomes a single point of failure as opposed to enabling success, perhaps. Almost always. Your bit about intent is absolutely, you know, is ringing all sorts of ch chimes with with everything we're talking about you know the military intent is exactly a parallel with your your why how what the golden circle which is yeah. in the intent paragraph in a set of orders you have Correct. a purpose a method and an end state so everyone knows what they're going to do how you're going to do it and why you're doing it and that way you avoid the kind of now what are we going to do when there's that moment of complete chaos simon i'm very, I'm very conscious of time but with that sort of theme how do you think perhaps the military might learn a bit more from the, from a civilian world or working practices in specifically about performance and trust and how that team can come together and, and allow leaders to lead better yeah. and followers to be better people so i think that the military gives too much credit to the private sector and overly enamored by 
and what the private sector is doing because look how successful they are in building big companies and making profit and all that. We should learn from them. And the answer is, uh, careful, because a lot of those private companies are driven with a solely finite mindset. They're driven with a shareholder value. They have no intent of leaving the organization in better shape than they found it. And the average lifespan of, of a company has dramatically decreased over the past 40 years from 60 years to about 17 years. In other words, it's the opposite of what you're trying to achieve. And so um, I'd be very cautious about the, and it's because it's unfamiliar, because few of you have had significant time in private sector. And so it's the unfamiliar, so it's overly enamored. And I'm just telling you, because I live in both worlds, please be cautious. What I do recommend is embracing the concept of worthy rivalry, which is who are the people or organizations that are better at your job than you? So it's okay to look to private sector if there's one thing that you're looking to. For example, let's say messaging, right? Company A is brilliant at messaging where the army is junk at messaging. Go look, absolutely, go learn from your worthy rivals, but also look within inside your own organizations. One leader is much better than this leader. Study what that leader is doing inside your own ranks. Or perhaps the Navy is doing something way better than the army then go study what the Navy's doing or look in your soft communities because there are lessons to be learned, but those lessons are less broad. And you, basically a, a worthy rival is a personal organization who does one or many things better than you to the mm. point that maybe it actually makes you a little insecure. Yeah, that's brilliant, Simon. I think we collectively seek to improve all the time. You know, there's a, there is an adage of the unrelenting pursuit of excellence looking outside sometimes you're probably right we don't perhaps look inside to see where excellence is being displayed so we can learn from that i think it's fantastic yeah amen i'll tell you one quick story of what great leadership looks like and i have a friend who's a i know she's a, star, a staff sergeant I, I think in the u.s army and her soldiers were qualifying to shoot and i think they have to hit like 28 out of 40 shots to qualify mm -hmm. and one of the soldiers just couldn't hit the target couldn't hit the target and so one of the other NCOs comes up to him and says, what are you doing? Aim, aim higher, B pull the trigger. No, over the, look through the scope, to, telling him what to yeah. do. And it just wasn't working. This kid was, he just couldn't shoot. This is not good. Um, my friend took over. She stepped in and said, I'm not going to tell you how to use your weapon. You know how to use your weapon. Just do what we've trained you to do and hit the target. And he pulls the target, he pulls the trigger and he misses. She says nothing. She doesn't correct anything. She just stands there, not a word. He lines up again and he pulls the trigger and he hits the target and she screams like he just won the lottery. You did it, you did it, fantastic, excellent. You know what you're doing, you're fantastic. He pulls the trigger again, he misses, complete silence. She says nothing. He pulls the trigger again, hits the target. She explodes like he just won something. And every time he hits the target, she explodes with joy and compliments. He ended up hitting something like 36 out of 40. Um, uh, and it just really goes to when, we f when, when our people feel loved and supported, we know what they're doing. They know what mm. they're doing. They're well-trained. But when they feel loved and supported, they hit the target. And that's as true for anything, not just shooting. If you know what you're doing, you can hit the target. Yeah. But if you feel loved and supported. If you feel loved and supported. If you feel well, loved first, and first, first you we have to teach the them the skill, yeah, right? We have to teach them the skill, and then we have to support them in the application of that skill. But yeah. once they know what they're doing, if we can constantly criticize and correct, it goes to that micromanagement or that command and control. If we're constantly criticizing and correcting, they, they will actually struggle more. And it's that <laughs> transition that a leader makes where you go from being a, a practitioner, which is, I know how to use my rifle better than you, so you listen to me, versus a supporter. You know how to use your rifle. I'm just, just do what you know. Yeah. You know, I got you. I got you, man. I got you. An enabler. An enabler. Yeah. So, but yeah. and and I think that's that's one of the hardest things for somebody as they achieve a leadership position is to make that transition because when you're junior, you're good at what you do and that's what got you promoted. But now you're no longer responsible for the doing. You're now responsible for the people who do the job you used to do, and that's yeah. leadership. I'm not going to let you off the hook. Just yet. I, I always try and ask a few quick fire questions. Okay. So if I may, um, a couple of just to, to fire your way. Who's the best leader you've ever worked with and why? It's an impossible question. I, I, there's no best. 
there's ones that I admire that all have room for improvement, right? It goes to the infinite okay. game. There is no best. It doesn't so exist. Who, maybe perhaps someone, you know, a smorgasbord of people. A smorgasbord of leaders that I admire and I learn from. Okay, perhaps. so I mentioned one of them before, General Mike Drowley, Brigadier General Mike Drowley, call sign Johnny Bravo. I, I wrote about him in Leaders Eat Last and I've kind of gone on to be friends with him. Yeah. And he, he is, he's remarkable. Yeah. Uh, Lieutenant General George Flynn, United States Marine Corps, retired. I asked him what makes the Marine Corps so good at what they do. And this is a warrior. He's a hardcore, he's a warrior. And he said, uh, love, love of country, love of Corps, love of your fellow Marine. Uh, and I love that. I've learned that mm -hmm. from him. I've learned that, that, that it's these intangibles. It's the, it's the human stuff mm -hmm. that is the fabric of great high-performing organizations. Yeah. Um, Bob Chapman, the CEO of a company called Barry Waymiller. I wrote about him in Leaders Eat Last as well. I wrote about a lot of the people I discovered and some of them became friends. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to learn from them and they become mentors. Mm. And uh, uh, Bob views every employee in his company as someone's son and someone's daughter. And when you think about that, it changes the way you treat them. Absolutely. The massive amount of empathy he brings to work and has one of the highest performing manufacturing companies in the country. So yeah, those are three that I really admire. Well, that, that's, you know, some really, some really powerful stuff in there. What's about the most inspirational leader from history and why? Well, I think it's, it's a trick question because any of the leaders that have where their work has survived them and we've continued to build on what they started meet that criteria, right? So Mahatma Gandhi, clearly we're still working on it and we invoke their names, but clearly we're still doing the work that they started. Any of those quote unquote great historical figures in some way, shape or form, we're still working and trying to advance their causes. But in your perspective, so when you close your eyes and think, when you talk about those three gentlemen you mentioned in terms yeah. of who you've worked with or, or got to know, yeah. if you close your eyes and think, who's someone that I look back and think they did, they did something that I would like to develop and, and use in my own way of leading. So the, I'm going to bucket sort of two or three of them together because there's something that I admire about all of them at the same time, mm -hmm. which is JFK, FDR, and Churchill. And the thing that I love about them was how honest they were with us. Like the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, JFK goes on television and be like, okay, this happened. We're not exactly sure what to do, but we're going to think about it and we'll get back to you. Right? That's unheard of in our modern day. Or Churchill and FDR, they'd give very honest accountings of how things were going. Mm. And in our modern day, everything has a veneer, everything has a gloss, everything's spun to be positive when it's gone to shit. And I just appreciated the honesty and it made us feel like we were involved and we were included and it made us want to stick with them because they told us what's what. Now mm. clearly they didn't tell us everything, but it, I was amazed just the level of honesty. If you look at Afghanistan and you look at Vietnam, they never came out and said, whew, this is not going the way we intended. And that may have changed things. That may have changed things for the better, quite frankly. So I, I really appreciated that candor, okay. public candor. Of, of all the leadership lessons that you've learned or seen or, or perhaps, what do you think is the most valuable one? You, you know, you hear vision, charisma. Well, I know a lot of really good leaders who don't have like big Elon Musk, Steve Jobs visions. I know a lot of great leaders who mm -hmm. you wouldn't even know which one they were if you walked in the room because they're just, they don't ooze charisma. But all the great leaders that I've had the opportunity to meet and work with or study, they all have courage. They have the courage to do the right thing versus the expedient thing. They have the courage to stand up to overwhelming pressure to do, uh, to stick to the finite game rather than, to, to stick to the infinite game rather than play the finite game. They have the courage to obey their values. They have, I, I think courage is the thing. Um, yeah. It's very hard because the pressures are overwhelming to do short expedient things that look good yeah. or advance yourself. Sacrificing your career to do the right thing is an amazing thing. Um, and so I have, I, to me, courage is the thing, which, yeah. which then begs the question, where does courage come from? And I do not for one minute believe that courage is deep internal fortitude. Dig down deep and find the courage, right? I don't think that's true. I think courage is external where, you know, uh, somebody, we have the courage to jump out of an aircraft, not because of our deep internal fortitude, it's because of the parachute strapped in our backs. It's the external thing that gave us the courage. A world famous trapeze artist would never try a brand new death defying act for the first time without a net 
It's the net that gave them courage. And if you think about anybody who, who runs to, towards the danger in, a, in battle, it's not God and country. It never is. It's person to the left and person to the right. And I believe that when we have at least one person in our lives, on our team, who says to us, I've got your back. If everything goes sour, I'll still be, I'll still be there with you. Mm. Or you have to do this. It's mm. the right thing. If we have the belief that one person is with us, it gives us courage. And so for us to build courage means that we have to take responsibility to take care of those around us. And we have to nurse our personal relationships because without them, we are cowards. Well, it's, that's brilliant. Courage sits at the, the very top of our, our values that we hold so dear uh, and you know, both physical and moral courage, being able to do the right thing, but also knowing when to stop and make sure the right thing is done. Uh, and, and that both. means that I want to see that those troops are developing really good relationships. So yeah. they have at least one person who says, you have to do the right thing. And yeah. they do. Hey, Simon, finally, um, with hindsight, what would you tell a, a young Simon Sinek about leadership? <laughs> I think it goes back to something we actually talked about before. I think I wish I had learned younger. I don't have to know all the answers and I don't have to pretend that I do. Brilliant. Simon, thank you so much for giving up your time. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And I know many people who are going to listen to this will learn an awful lot from what you said. Thank you so much for giving up your time. Thanks so much for having me and giving me a forum to share my ideas. I really appreciate it. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. As ever, a pleasure speaking to someone who is so clearly passionate about leadership and making people and society better. Simon's comments about leadership being nothing to do with your position or being in charge, but instead highlighting that it is the awesome responsibility to those around you and making those around you rise, directly mirrors the army's view on servant leadership and putting the needs of your followers first. Very simply, serving those you lead. Equally, the need for leaders to know themselves before they can lead others is a central pillar within the Army Leadership Doctrine. It outlines the requirement for our leaders to understand their own strengths, weaknesses and motivations, which in turn chimes with Simon's comments on self-awareness and understanding. By a leader being honest about not having all the answers, it engenders a safe space and culture for their people to thrive. As we know within the Army, a high-performance team cannot function without trust and respect. Simon spoke specifically about how he believes military leaders build trust and love with their teams away from operations, being more transformational in how they operate, so that when on operations, facing stressful or challenging situations, the leader has gained the trust of their team and is able to be more transactional when required. More broadly, he spoke about leaders needing to have an infinite mindset, taken from his research and new book, The Infinite Game. He spoke passionately about leaders who have a narrow and finite mindset achieving only short-term results, whereas leaders who embrace an infinite and long-term mindset and outlook create an environment that fosters trust, innovation and collaboration, which in turn develops individual and collective potential and delivers sustainable results. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, do please subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. For more information on British Army leadership and to get in touch with anyone on the team, please visit our website and of course, follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.